0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly-ish look at what's going on in the world of EBM. I'm Doug Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. This week we've got a pretty packed episode for you. Did you know we've only got one tool to assess all of that different qualitative research? We'll hear some more about that. There's another update on that perennial topic of covid New research into sequelae has identified yet more things that Covid causes. And we'll also hear more about the effectiveness of the vaccines after six months. We're also having a look at some problematic joints and more research about the effectiveness of interventions for shoulders and knees. To discuss all that, I'm joined by the BMJ's research integrity editor, Helen McDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And editor in chief of BMJ Evidence Based Medicine, Juan Franco.
1: Hi, Juan. Hi, Duncan Hi, Helen.
2: And we're kind of GPs. And you kind of. G- although I'm resting. Resting and Juan's too. Like I think Juan, Juan could be like coming into the resting category.
0: <laughs> yes, you've moved countries, Juan. That makes it uh, harder. To, uh, to to practice <laughs> and you know more time to spend looking at uh, research papers for us oh yeah uh, usually we'd be joined as well by joe ross um but he's currently on holiday so resting as well i suppose but deservedly so
2: sunning himself
0: as i said we've got a packed episode for you uh helen and juan have been at Evidence Live, the conference that kind of started this podcast way back mm. when...
2: Rebranded though, Dunk, it's EBM Live ah, now.
0: Well, what was going on there? Do you want to give us, give listeners a quick pre Well,
2: it was possibly as hot as Joe's holiday, wherever he went to, which I, I still don't know. It was uh, the middle of the heat wave. And this is the first time we've been able to do the e- event since before the pandemic, um, which was... Um, which was really humbling, actually. It it was really strange in a way to be out and about again, to be at a conference. Um, it, it was very local, much more local this time. We hadn't sort of planned to invite lots and lots of people from different countries because we didn't really know what was going to be going on with COVID when we started to put the programme together. So um, I th- I think that was good. The numbers were, were therefore smaller. Um, and I think people had somewhat forgotten how to talk to each other and present things. <laughs> forgotten how tiring it is when you're in conference sessions all day so so that was um that was very interesting i think for me one of the mm-hmm. things i most enjoyed about being at the conference was looking at those kind of subtle shifts that happen over time and i think one theme of the conference which is really strengthened and is such a, a wonderful thing to watch is how patient and public um, involvement and partnership in evidence has changed over the time that we've been doing the conference and it was something that was talked about a lot the sort of imperative to do it and the shift in the conference this time was we heard we had a session um, I was chairing it Juan was there as well listening and um, and there were a number of speakers in that session not just talking about the importance of doing um uh, work with patients in the public, but actually talking about how they have actually done it and sharing their kind of, um, they are researchers, methodology <laughs> around
0: <laughs> involving
2: patients in the public and, and measuring it and making sure it's all very precise and um, accurate. But just watching that um, kind of uh, policy and and that shift in how people do research uh, really come to life. The other thing that I think was very interesting was um, sometimes you sit in those sessions at, at conferences, especially ones about evidence, which can get quite ground down in methodology and your brain starts to hurt. And my brain did start to hurt on occasions, but less with the methodology, but and more in the number of presentations that included really strong elements of just care, um, clinical care being given. Gr- given on the ground, how messy it can be when you try and um, do EBM, where you try and take that evidence and try and combine it with those other pillars of patients' values and preferences and clinical expertise and messy situations, complex situations, complicated situations. Um, And we sat in some very hot sessions about that, Juan, didn't we, on the peak of the heatwave. I think it was like 39 degrees that day. But it was uh, Juan's first time at the conference. So I'm interested to see what he thought and it was in fact the first time Juan and I had ever met in real life yes
1: yes we've crossed the virtual world and I had to do a, a height adjustment
2: Juan thought I was very short based on my uh, <laughs> it's
1: a common zoom <laughs> appearance problem. on zoom yeah.
2: he was surprised how yeah, how tall I was
1: told me the other day that it's the major adjustment meeting someone in person it's the height but also, I think that the conference, well, first of all, it was very stimulating. It's not the same participating in an online conference. Um, and also, from, even from the methods part, which you said, yeah, it, does can, make you, it can make your brain hurt at some time. There were in some interesting debates about what are the different types of role of evidence. There was a session that I found interesting on, on qualitative evidence. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of room for development and, and one of the comments that I, that, that I thought that was very nice from the presenter was that we have so many tools to assess uh, um, RCTs and observational studies, but we have, for example, one tool to assess all qualitative evidence we, we had, that have so many different types of designs and methodologies. And that sort of uh, tells you a lot about what we are thinking about, how the role uh, in decision-making. Um, and there's a couple of papers, perhaps uh, Duncan, we can link it in the, in the episode about uh, from from BMJ EBM uh, that discuss this uh, this topic, and that we used in the session.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is really Helen. Going back to what you were talking about with um, patients, it feels like the those conversations around the need to involve patients, the need to for EBM to engage in with the messiness of clinical practice and to your point, Juan, the the need to kind of diversify um the methodology. Um those calls have all been around for a while. So does it feel like these things are finally actually happening and perhaps kind of starting to slot into place? Will we see a revolution in, in EBM?
1: Well the 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 pandemic thought brought a lot of debate about the role of evidence. I think that there were led a lot of online discussion fights, uh, people throwing papers at their face about all all of the all of the policies whether a policy was evidence based or not, whether we were following the science or not. And I do hope that if we can sort of well we can all calm down a little bit and reach some sort of uh a better dialogue. Um, I thought that it was interesting what happened recently. Last week, we published this um, paper uh, led by Trish Greenhold and about uh, the need to incorporate different types of evidence into evidence-based medicine, for example, mechanistic evidence or evidence from engineering. And we got a, rebu- a rebuttal from San Murad, who wrote a very interesting opinion piece about why this... Might not be uh, good, and based on some examples of how ev- mechanistic evidence um, may lead us uh, to wrong conclusions. And I thought that we should get a little bit more to that, so, to those sort of head to heads uh, that le- left, uh, leave us thinking uh, on, on how to do, what to do in these circumstances, unless online, uh, Twitter, be current. <laughs>
2: yes, less less arguing about necessarily rightness and wrongness, but the different perspectives that you might be able to take and and particularly in areas that are uncertain or difficult to investigate, um, trying to take into account of all the information that you have.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, we can have long conversations about how Twitter sometimes creates false dichotomies between these things. Mm. Um, so yeah. Listen out for more of this on on Evidence Live in the future. Uh, But before we get to those more philosophical chats, let's get into some actual uh, real-world science. Um, And Juan, you've got a paper you wanted to talk about, uh, shoulder arthroscopy.
1: The shoulder surgery paper is a very interesting um, population-based cohort study uh, the, and in which they try to ascertain the num- the the incidence of, of adverse events and reoperation, and they got massive data from uh, 288,000 shoulder procedures with uh, 90 days and one year follow-up, and um, the findings were very interesting. They they from uh, the adverse events from different types of surgeries. Subacromial decompression, rotator cuff repair, acromioclavicular joint excision, frozen shoulder release, and glenohumeral stabilization. And the main findings are that at 90 days, the the incidence of complications is one between 1.2 and 1.3 percent, and the rate of reoperation at one year is 3.8 percent. And the, it's interesting how they frame the results as 1 in 26, which I think. A lot of people will find it more easy to understand, uh, and um, and that's very informative, especially in the context of of these procedures that are, are mostly elective, and you need to discuss a patient the benefits and harms, and and there are two Cochrane reviews on on for rotator cuff um, repair and superchromial decompression, and the results from these systematic reviews of RCTs on the effectiveness of interventions show that. Perhaps there's there's evidence that this intervention have limited limited value. So when you're discussing with a patient an intervention for for a pain in your shoulder that has limited value, you really need information about adverse events. Uh, and sometimes RCTs can cannot collect this information properly.
2: That was, I think, for me the really interesting thing about this paper. Um, is is really as from an evidence point of view it demonstrates the value of those different types of evidence that you might need trials and systematic reviews of those trials to tell you whether doing this shoulder surgery is worth it whether there are substantial benefits and you might gain some information also from those studies about whether there are harms but the harms linked to surgery are often so rare that the data that would come would be quite limited and, and not quite enough people to be sure what's going on. So the the nice thing about this study was the pooling of the results from a, across the spectrum of surgery. But I guess, and I, I, I'm i not a surgeon, as everyone knows. <laughs> you know, I did do a six month surgery job at the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre, who I think are involved in this paper um, from Oxford. Um, but I think it's really nice to see that... Um, routine data being pulled together to give some information on harm so that you've got enough people to get a clearer picture of how likely those harms are so as Juan says that there are maybe discussions to be had about how beneficial this surgery might be but nice to see some more reliable information coming out about the low risk of harm which is reassuring but then that low risk of harm also has to be seen in the context of how much benefit is there really
0: Well, talking of harms and uh, identifying them, it seems like there are even more harms, uh, Helen, associated with COVID.
2: This is about the mystery, or maybe evolving lack of mystery now, on the loss of um, smell and taste uh, following COVID infection, which is declaration of interest, a particular pet topic of mine, because I totally lost my sense of smell when I had uh, COVID. And my taste was definitely funny. And it's still a bit odd about two years on after having COVID. Um, Of course, I'm not special because about half of people report some kind of change in those symptoms uh, when, when they've had COVID. And although it's been a bit bothersome having these symptoms going on, it feels like you can't really complain about these things because there's a lot of worse things that can happen to you after covid than not being able to smell things and if you live in a household with young children sometimes it's <laughs> actually it's really very pleasant for me not to <laughs> smell very well um, but nonetheless these things are important for for um eating for smelling for our nutrition um you know it's it's a sort of emotional and social part of your life isn't it eating eating nice things and smelling nice things as well Um, and there's a good package of content on this it's just just come out on bmj.com at the center of it is a research paper looking to clarify in patients with uh, covid19 looking at the recovery rate of smell and taste and the proportion of people who are experiencing ongoing um symptoms and the and some of the prognostic factors that might be linked into that so it's a systematic review and meta-analysis, and they're pulling in 18 studies with around 4,000 um, patients, and they're reconstructing a kind of ind- individual patient data um, meta-analysis to, to find some of their results. So, so to shortcut a lot of their results, which there, there's a lot in there. So if you pull out smell, for example, the average recovery after smell reported in these studies was a couple of weeks. That's, that's a median recovery. And in about three quarters of people, it was it was better by about 30 days. But around one in 20 people still experience problems with their smell um, about six months later. And they think that if anything, that's likely to be a bit of an underestimate due to some very clever funnel plots that they've got in there. And being female, having more severe symptoms or nasal congestion seem to be associated with having a uh, worse kind of recovery trajectory in there. Um that evidence um largely came from studies which were conducted by interviewing patients, which are which are relatively straightforward to do. And and um writing in an editorial link to this, um there are some interesting points that are drawn out. Firstly, that um the sort of nature of smell means that the patients are acting kind of as a self-control for themselves because you sort of know what things smelt like before and therefore if they're different for you. So that that was quite interesting. But the thing I was most interested in in this editorial is why does this happen in COVID? Um, And the editorial is kind of interested in this because they think if you understand why it's happening, kind of mechanistically why it might be happening, that might offer opportunities and strategies for trying to improve things. And what they say is that although involvement of the olfactory bulb or the central olfactory pathways um, in your brain can't really be excluded, most of the evidence now is pointing to the fact that the virus seems to get at the supporting cells um, around that area um, and because they kind of express the makeup that the virus needs to get in. And one study they write has suggested that it's um, components being released from those infected supporting cells that can't, kind of causes um, down regulation of the smell receptors um, and leads to the symptoms and um, and they do talk about, and I'm sure, did you say this to me, Duncan, way back in COVID, um, there was something about olfactory training and <laughs> the fact that you should start it um, as soon as possible after your symptoms, which basically involves smelling stuff. And what they what they list in there are four strong smelling scents of rose, eucalyptus, lemon and clove and you're meant to smell them fifteen for 15 seconds sorry, you're meant to smell them for 15 seconds twice a day over the course of several months. Now I'm obviously starting a bit late two years afterwards but I think I might try that even if they say the evidence is um, pretty limited
0: I imagine the harms are fairly uh, I think they would be low. I <laughs> also quite have. like the
2: idea of saying I have to leave everyone and leave my desk and isolate <laughs> myself from my family and go and sit in a room and smell little pots of things that look like they smell quite nice to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A um, little plug for one of our other podcasts, Deep Breath In, where we um, talked about anosmia and perosmia, um, uh, where I guess, Edley. Really, Woodrow used a piano and the chords on the piano to explain what is happening and why Uh, dysregulation of your sense of smell not only can make, um, make your smell disappear, but also alter um, what it is. So uh, go and have a listen to that if you would like a little bit of an explanation of what's going on. Interestingly, at the time, she said there wasn't a, a lot of evidence around scent training, but it seems like... Um, With a lot of stuff going on, uh, a lot of this going around, there's probably some good research coming out. Well, I think one of the points
2: the editorialist wanted to make was that given that there are a lot of people out there now with um, some smell and taste problems, it does actually create a population of people, um, albeit all with a common... um, common pathway i suppose to their to their difficulties to to try and provide the basis for some kind of um trials of of different different um treatments like these uh smelling things uh, to see to see if it might help <laughs>
0: Um, we were actually also reporting um, from some new uh, evidence in uh, Nature Medicine, I believe, um, about hair loss and sexual dysfunctions. So it seems like the list of things that COVID affects is not going to go away and this population of people is going to be growing. And on that, we were also going to talk about vaccinations and a little bit about how long protection lasts. Um, which I'm interested in because it seems like everyone in the UK is getting COVID again.
2: Yes. Well, the study that I, that I spotted online was this this one of um, the waning effectiveness of the two vaccines most commonly used um, in the UK, uh, and looking at. Um, at six months after the second dose, what was the efficacy like? And this is done using Open Safely, a huge cohort study linking electronic healthcare records um, in England. And we previously talked on the show about uh this project which is a type of trusted research environment with Naz islam one of the bmj's research editors and also a researcher who does that type of study and with um ben goldacre professor and director of the data lab in oxford whose team operationalized and created that um uh trusted research environment during the pandemic uh, let me just waffle down here a moment um awesome. It's really interesting to see how that project's developing. And when I clicked on the paper and and saw that it was uh, from this project, what really struck me looking at the authorship list now is the types of people involved. This is becoming so interesting because there are now, um, I think there were about eight software developers listed amongst the authorship and an engineer so it's really interesting to see how that shift in the evidence um, and types of evidence that we're beginning to use and develop is resulting in a kind of diversification of the types of people who were involved and it's useful for this study to be coming out at this time of year because in primary care in many places in the northern hemisphere um, people are busy planning vaccination campaigns against seasonal illnesses often flu, and the JCVI over here um, currently put out interim guidance in in May 2022, um, suggesting that in autumn 2022, COVID vaccines should be offered, so boosters should be offered to people in um, care homes and staff working there, frontline health and social care workers, people over 65 and adults who are 16 to 64 in a clinical risk group, and they're kind of putting everyone else... On hold, which I guess might alter, depending on whether there are waves or escape or some kind of new threatening variant. But getting back to this paper, this is from Elsie Horn using the Open Safely data, um, and what they say is that um, there's mixed evidence on on how we kind of. Um, understand the efficacy of vaccination in the longer term and how that evidence might feed into decision making about boosters. And they say that a recent systematic review found that vaccine effectiveness against severe COVID decreased by about 10%. By the time you get to about six months after full vaccination. And that against an infection in general, so sort of milder forms of COVID, when you add them in as well, it's about 21%. So quite a bit of difference between those two things. But the authors of that said that the study designs and lots of variations mean that it's quite hard to draw firm conclusions. So in this paper, They were estimating the effectiveness of the two vaccines that were used in the UK over about six months. They were looking at adults living in the community who had received two doses of one of the vaccines and comparing them to unvaccinated people. And they kind of chopped the six months up into four-week chunks. And they looked at those subgroups that have been um, of interest to many of the vaccine decision makers around the world. So people over 65, people who were adults who are clinically vulnerable, and then looking amongst the other broader healthy populations at those who are sort of 40 to 64 and 18 to 39. Um, So as you'd expect in a study like this, there are kind of literally millions of people who are um, eligible. The key things that the study found was that the the vaccine effectiveness did wane over time in keeping with much of um, the other evidence that's already existing. But that strong protection against COVID-19 related hospital admissions um, did persist up to 26 weeks or so around six months after the second dose. And, and the authors feel that this kind of design, this big cohort design, is an alternative to the test negative case control designs that have um, maybe become less feasible um, since programmes to um, test people um, have become uh, less available. So I guess um, this is just like another little piece of evidence. But what struck me looking at this paper was that these projects are now just so complicated. Not not only do they involve all of those uh, other skilled professionals that I mentioned, um, but actually when you start to read through these papers now, even as someone like me who reads research papers um, a lot, they're really complicated to read. And even though there's really great transparency of um, certainly this project and many others where you have all the coding and stuff available online, if I went there, would I really understand what they had done? I don't think I would, um, to be honest. And how we begin to um, make sense of this evidence in light of things like emerging variants and um, testing availability and other advice, um, I think is really challenging.
1: I also think that it's very reassuring, considering that there were earlier reports that the vaccine waning from biochemical indicators, for example, antibodies or other surrogate markers, said three or four months, but having estimates that... that, uh, Protection for hospitalization is is more long lasting. is a little bit reassuring, and they also cover the period of interest, right, until December, from July to December, which would I think it would be very useful for those making the decisions.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad, Juan, you got that because Helen, I think i have just going to say welcome to my world when it comes to confusion about all of these things. I think there's probably a lot of confusion out there. And actually, it'd be great to hear from people uh, listening um, about what they would like to know, because I feel like it's time for us to perhaps do another one of our deep delves into vaccination or other or bits around uh, preventing COVID. Well, so, I had a very um,
2: good conversation before, didn't I, with uh, Anthony Handon from J- JCVI over here? But so it'd be great to go back to him or to another one of the kind of vaccine policymakers to talk about how they're trying to assimilate all this evidence now and make um, make decisions.
0: Well, absolutely. And uh, so, Anthony, if you're listening, uh, we'll probably be knocking on your door. And if you've got questions for someone like Anthony, we can't promise he'll come on, um, (laughs) uh, do get in touch and let us know.
2: He's got the pressure now of the fact that we've name-dropped him (laughs) in the podcast. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, last thing we wanted to cover uh, today, we've done... Shoulders, um, let's go to knees. Any toes in there, Juan? But
2: no well, you didn't sing but. it, Duncan.
0: <laughs> no one needs to hear my singing voice. It's
2: worth saying that oh. I nearly dismissed this paper because obviously steroid knee injections are a really common treatment for osteoarthritis. Um, so I was quite attracted to reading this paper, and then I discovered that it was about something that I didn't really know about at all, because it was about a, a fancy different thing being injected called visco-supplementation, and I've never seen that being used. But Juan tells me it's very much used elsewhere, so he's going to tell us about the paper.
1: Well, yes. Um, I, I, uh, viscous, well, the title is, is also might not be familiar, because most people know it as hyaluronic uh, acid injection, so... That's another level of of, of of missing the topic. But I uh, I think, yes, in, in the UK perhaps it's not used because um, at some point NICE said no. <laughs> but uh, in, in the rest of the world, it's widely used, especially with people with chronic pain. In the Well, the, the paper shows data about how, how widely spread is the use of hyaluronic acid injections for knee osteoarthritis. But also uh, with people with chronic pain, sometimes they're there's a lot of off the mainstream medical treatment circuit well you get offered all sorts of treatments for, for chronic knee pain and this is one of them um, one of the ways it's advertised is that it's not surgery because it's only an injection and it, it improves the lubrication of, of the of the joint and, uh, and therefore reduces pain But Are you this- paid
2: to market this one. Because you're doing to, a very good job.
1: Uh, no, you haven't heard the second part. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the second part is that, that this systematic review, a uh, hun- large systematic review, 169 trials with data on over tw- 21,000 people, uh, basically highlights that the, this intervention, whereas I might have said it better uh, before, it, it does not reduce uh, pain in, in any meaningful way. Um, for they, they do a good uh, translation of how they was, this would mean. From a scale to 1 to 100, zero, no pain, and 100, maximum pain, it would reduce between almost one point and four points. You, you can understand that the, 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 the reduction is very, very unimportant meaning, uh, clinical meaning.
2: So maybe if you've got like 10% pain... It would go down to like five percent, or if you've got like ninety five percent pain, it would go down to like ninety. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah,
1: yeah. So Back. another thing that I found, uh, they also incre- found that there's an increased incidence of adverse events, and and they do something that is I found that it was very clever that they did what is called a cumulative meta analysis. Whenever we yes, I do-
2: wanted to ask you about this one.
1: So w- whenever we teach meta-analysis, there's this example from 1992 of, of the uh, cumulative meta-analysis for streptokinase for um, myocardial infar- infarction that tells you that uh, had, we know, had, had we analyzed the cumulative evidence to some point, we will stop randomizing people into streptokinase or placebo. So, so in
2: other words, you're saying that if you did a meta-analysis, like after each of the studies that came out... exactly. And you looked at the answer incomplete each time with streptokinase, we should have known yeah. pretty pretty early.
1: Pre- pretty early. Uh, I think it was the beginning of the 80s. We would have realized that we should have stopped doing trials and start using it. But patients would continue to be randomized. I think 40,000 patients were randomized to streptokinase. Uh, to, uh, um, or placebo. And that's the example we always use, but I think I'm going to change, because this is such an old example, I think I'm going to change it with this one. It's oh, okay, more, so it's when should current. we have
2: known that this was a total waste of time?
1: Well, so they have this, uh, the, the first indication is in 2004 when they have uh, approximately 2,000 patients randomized to um, the injections uh, of hyaluronic acid versus placebo you sort of get the same estimate that we get in 2022. So, but the difference is now that another... um, So now you're nearly 9,000 participants were randomized in the middle and perhaps they shouldn't have because we already knew in 2004 that this treatment may not be beneficial. They they implemented this fancy technique of trial sequential analysis that's also on figure... um, Five that does the same thing and shows you in time at what point we start knowing that that this treatment was not beneficial, but we still were running trials, and that's also a lot of research waste. And um, and and it's interesting that the recommendation of not using this intervention from Nice came ten years later in in, in 2014 in the list of things that that said not to do. Uh, well, it's good, that, it, and but it's still being used. So that made me think a lot about how much time, once an intervention is widely disseminated, uh, is needed for it to be de-implemented. And, and, and especially depending on the characteristics of the system. For example, the UK has NICE that says no and that sort of restricts a lot how you can use intervention, but in other systems in which um, there are more commercial drivers to the the implementation of interventions, then stop using it It becomes a little bit more tricky.
2: And this feels like there are things about it because it's an an injection, it's not, I guess, I mean, I guess it must have some kind of cost, but my guess is it's not wildly, wildly expensive that even if you're paying, this kind of treatment yourself as an individual if you're suffering with a lot of pain then even if there isn't good evidence um you can see why people um would decide to take the chance
1: yeah because they're very uncomfortable absolutely and it also can be out-of-pocket expenses for example in, in so it's very important to to try to disseminate disseminate this um This evidence, but we're still unclear on how to stop using those that are of little value. And perhaps if we stop paying attention to this, we can put uh, our resources into some things that work,
2: right? When I first saw those plots, one, and I've seen the streptokinase one as well, one thing that I wondered is is this something that you can only really know in hindsight, like you can just only be wise after the event when you have all this data and you line it up. But actually the interesting thing is that you don't need all that data. It should be if you're doing relatively regular systematic reviews that you can see that answer and what's really happening once you've got the answer and you're just then adding more and more evidence in. If you're adding more and more evidence, which is kind of showing the same thing, which it should be, Then the main thing that's going to happen is a tiny bit of fine tuning and their confidence intervals kind of shrinking around that. So even if it felt like a little bit uncertain at some point in time, there clearly is a point, often a long time before you really get to that policy change, where it was really quite certain.
1: Yeah. There's an interesting essay by Kamal uh, Matani, which we heard in Evidence Live the other day, that. In, that is called. All health researchers should begin their training by preparing at least one systematic review. And in one of in that essay, he says all trials should start with the systematic review and end with the systematic review with meta analysis. So uh, I think that yes, that that comes exactly to your point.
2: Yeah. So you can really see to how have you narrowed that uncertainty that was there at the beginning, and are you how much clearer are we now at the end?
0: Do you think that the sudden flourishing of living systematic reviews that um we've seen over covid um but now spreading elsewhere will will stop this will make this kind of
2: I don't know I think it's quickly? kind of interesting to think with a living systematic review whether you might just as a I suppose as a story be able to do some of these cumulative plots with your different versions of the paper over time just so you can narrate that um, story because I think that's one of the most interesting things about living evidence it gives you the opportunity to tell a story over time and I still don't think that we've used um, living reviews fully to their full potential in that way to really tell a story.
0: Great. Well, a whistle-stop tour through a lot of uh, evidence there. Um, thank you, Helen and Juan, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back again in another month with more from the world of VBM. hopefully with Joe uh, as well. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts, so you can subscribe and make sure you don't miss out. As we said, it'd be great to hear from you if you've got any questions for us about COVID or anything else. Have a look at bmj.com forward slash podcast to find out how to get in touch. Well, that's it for, for this week. Just last thing to say is goodbye from me.
1: Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.
0: Take care out there.